Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers what's going on with AI. This is our latest Last Week in AI episode, in which you get quick summaries and discussion of some of last week's most interesting AI news. I'm Andrei Kurenkov, a third-year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. I focus mostly on learning algorithms for robotic manipulation. And with me is my co-host. Hi, I'm Dr. Sharon Joe, a graduating fourth-year PhD student in the machine learning group working with Andrew Ng. I do research on generative models and applying machine learning to medicine and climate. And for our first article today on research, it is titled GPD-3 a disappointing paper. And this was a blog post, greaterwrong.com, that kind of went through the GPT-3 paper and talked about why it was so disappointing for them. Um, And so this was a self-acclaimed enthusiastic user of GPT-2 who wrote a lot about GPT-2, but was really disappointed by GPT-3 because it just felt like it was a bigger GPT-2. And... To GPT-3's credit, I would say that it is. Oh man, they do state that in the paper quite, quite uh, point blankly. Uh, but what are your thoughts on this, Andre? Any any points that really jumped out at you in this blog? Yeah, I, I was a bit disappointed with this blog post because it's always fun to hear people <laughs> be very critical <laughs> uh, sometimes. But uh, yeah, as you said here, the the gist of the disappointment was just that you know apparently they wanted more than just more GPT two, and I think um, it's it's weird to some extent that this person seems to discount kind of the actually interesting part of GPT-3, which is the whole idea that uh, it's a few-shot learner and that uh, with just a few kind of uh, examples about updating the weights or optimizing at all, it can do a lot of stuff. And then, yeah, in this blog post, this person says, I can imagine someone viewing this as very important if they thought it showed an ability in transformer language models to pick things up on the fly in an extremely data-efficient, human-like way. Well, I think you should imagine that because that's exactly what people get excited about, uh, including me, uh, this being a fairly novel phenomenon uh, as far as we could tell. So I don't know. I, it's it's a fun read in a way, but it, it doesn't say anything too insightful, I, don't, I wouldn't say. Yeah, and I understand the kind of disappointment around GPT-3 not having any conceptual, you know, transformations, uh, but it it does show qualitative improvements that are really just changes how we view language models and and do kind of push this inflection point uh, in this field. Uh, but of course, with few shot learning, it's not you know, it's not perfect, and that that kind of brings us to the the second article under research. Uh, which is titled NYU, Facebook, and CIFAR present, quote, true few-shot learning for language models whose few-shot ability, they say, is overestimated. Um, And so, Andre, do you want to talk a bit about this article? Yeah, this I found quite interesting because, as we just said, GPT-3 and uh, other models recently, this whole idea that you can just train a model and then give it an example without uh, re-optimizing it at all, just like give it an input and ask it to continue 
and it can do various things. Like you give it an example of an addition or just its input, and then it can continue doing that. Uh, and it seemed to work really well. Uh, and then uh, so far it's been mostly qualitative. Uh, there's some efforts to make it more quantitative. And this one basically uh, gave a critical look into how that works. And what they showed is um, basically people have sort of been cheating. Like, uh, yeah, they uh, when when testing um, the few shot capabilities, they were doing model selection on the validation set, right? So they trained a bunch of different models with different hyperparameters, and they picked out the best one on a validation set. And so here, they uh, the team. Uh, has uh, an idea called true few shot learning where you can't uh, use any sort of validation data set. You only have your, you know, the training set which you're given. And so you only have the actually few shots that you're given. And um, it uh, worked a lot worse, right? And uh, it's also hard to choose good prompts. So you, you might get unexpected results. So uh, yeah, I thought this was quite interesting, and I think this is a nice example of how you know even if often uh, things that are found in AI are a bit sloppy or turn out to be not quite what people thought, you know we are being critical of each other, and then you know there's papers papers like this that um, do point out where kind of a community has misconceptions and is you know, doing science wrong and, uh, you know, tries to correct for it. So, uh, yeah, I think it's quite neat. And I think in general, you know, with a lot of these models and setups, I see a lot of training on the test set type situations. And this isn't, you know, it's not quite as extreme, this few shot learning before this true few shot learning, but it is you know, using the validation set in a way that makes it kind of unfair and not a realistic scenario. And I, I do see this elsewhere, especially in areas that are applying machine learning and they think that it's okay to just use the validation set or even a test set that's not completely held out to do model selection. And that's really bad <laughs> because you are definitely overfit or you're doing something with your test set and that is not necessarily held out or realistic. So I think this is important work uh, moving forward. Yeah, for sure. And I find this pretty funny working in RL because uh, you effectively <laughs> always use a test set. So. <laughs> uh, anyways, I'll quote you um, on that. that's enough. <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eh, well, everyone knows it. It's an open secret. Everyone knows. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so fun, uh, fun discussion, research still uh, maybe questionable. Don't trust any papers in research. That's what we are concluding. <laughs> you know, everything is questionable. That's just AI for you. <laughs> uh, but let's move on to beyond research, to real world applications where maybe you, um, you know, it's a bit more high stakes and you don't want to cheat uh, quite as much. And we have a first example with this article, uh, Google Ventures backed Merlin Labs is building AI that can fly planes. Um, so as the title implies, this is about Merlin 
Labs, which develops autonomous systems that fly airplanes and which just emerged from Stealth with $25 million in funding from Google Ventures and others. And it says it wants to be the definitive autonomy platform for things that fly. And um, yeah, it's now at 50 employees, has a dedicated flight facility at the Mojave Air and Spaceport, and apparently has already, its system has already piloted hundreds of unmanned test flights. So... Okay, uh, that seems pretty cool. Uh, does make me wonder, you know, this is an example of where you especially want your system to be reliable and to not break. And this is notoriously something that's tough for AI. So yeah, it's cool, but I do wonder how they can, you know, really use AI while still being safe. Uh, what do you think, Sharon? I'm surprised that this is just being announced now. I feel like I've been waiting for this since the self-driving car craze. It just seems obvious that there should be a self-flying uh, plane. And I think for planes, you know, a lot of planes are almost autonomous. You know, they're kind of, they're not obviously level five autonomy, but they have a lot of autopilot going on. Uh, and it's the humans are largely some people say, you know, kind of in the loop for a lot of commercial flights uh, compared to, of course, driving where that's not necessarily the case. And so I can definitely see this happening. Uh, of course, we want to be much more careful with the plane. There are a lot more people on board. Um, of course, with cargo, um, maybe that's not as uh, bad. That's kind of like a cargo ship or even a truck. But, you know, there are issues with a, a plane crashing for sure. So uh, I, I'm excited to see where this goes is, is all it is. And it sounds like they have enough runway to, to work on it for quite some time until um, they need, let's say, some revenue from government deal or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's always exciting to find a new application of AI, and this is one that I haven't seen. So uh, let's uh, wait and see, and maybe we'll all be able to take cheaper flights uh, eventually. And uh, speaking of uh, you know autonomous vehicles, we have another uh, story here about a more traditional kind. As you mentioned, we have self-driving truck completes a 950-mile trip 10 hours faster than human driver. And so, yeah, this is a story about uh, this company, Too Simple, which is a transportation company focusing on driverless tech for trucks. And it said how 80% of a journey of a long-haul truck uh, transporting a load of watermelons from Arizona to Oklahoma um, how 80% of a journey was driven by autonomous system with a human at the wheel for the other 20%. And how that, uh, as the title says, was 10 hours faster than a human driver. Um, yeah, so I guess it's neat to see this example. Uh, I do wonder if this is really surprising or new. Uh, it's My impression is these sort of demonstrations have already existed. What do you think, Sharon? I'm I'm actually quite impressed with uh, uh, how it's, you know, nearly level four autonomous or something like that. Uh, and it's really getting there and showing a serious promise over humans. I think there is the residual question of, well, there is a human on board who's supposed to take over if something's wrong. 
isn't that person supposed to be taking sleep breaks? Shouldn't the car, the truck be uh, resting as well? And I think, you know, obviously what's kind of most likely happening is the, the, the truck is driving just fine on its own and the person is asleep for some, some of that stretch. Uh, so it's, you know, like there will be some safety issues, I imagine. Um, but I, I can see how this is where things are rolling out much more quickly than, uh, you know, city driving, for example, uh, with people, uh, dashing about everywhere. Uh, this is just largely empty, long stretches of road that are straight, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. I think, it does make more sense to be less strict on highways, right? Just straight driving for miles. <laughs> you could see it being okay with no, not person being at the uh, wheel. So uh, probably we'll see a lot more autonomous trucks before autonomous cars out there. It makes sense. Right, right. And now shifting over to societal, you know, uses of AI and societal implications of AI. Uh, our first article here is on King County is first in the country to ban facial recognition software. And this is from Como News. So King County, where Seattle, Washington is in, uh, is actually the first county in the U.S. that is banning facial recognition software for good. And, uh, you know, supporters are very much applauding this move. Um, no government agency in King County uh, was using facial recognition software. Um, and, yep, this basically bans it from this entire county. Uh, and, and the police haven't been using it either. So it wasn't a huge, huge, you know, controversy for them. Uh, and as, from what I know about Seattle, I'm not super surprised uh, that they were the first county. I, I could see them very much uh, supporting something like this. Maybe Portland, that, their county, I would have expected them to be first, maybe. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not super surprised uh, that they've they've pushed forward on this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, I guess it's news or cool in the sense that this is the first county that has done it. And I think that's also what has been reported and why it's a big deal. This article does note that right now Portland, San Francisco and Boston already have similar bands. So I guess on the city level, it's already been a bit of a trend. Now, uh, this is a growing trend. Uh, so it's interesting. Yeah, maybe a lot of you know, dealing with facial recognition will be more local as opposed to federal, uh, which kind of makes sense. I guess policing is often uh, to some extent local. So um, I can see that being uh, reasonable. I did find it interesting that there is an exception to the software ban that allows law enforcement or government agencies to comply with the National Child Search Assistance Act. So, you know, for dire cases, I guess you can use facial recognition, but otherwise not. Yep, that makes sense. And it's also for a certain segment of the population, too, uh, for, for children in particular, uh, for, for better or for worse, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah uh, probably, you know, it seems like they were very thoughtful in how they uh, implemented this, so it makes sense. And um, on to another story that is probably for the worst, I would say, <laughs> maybe <laughs> definitely less positive. We have uh, have autonomous robots started killing in war from The Verge. So last week, there's been a number of publications that declared 
based on a UN report from a Libyan civil war that killer robots may have hunted down humans autonomously for the first time. And here, the killer robot is uh, this Cargo 2 system that is a quadcopter that is built in Turkey and is just a consumer drone that has a bomb strapped to it. <laughs> so it can you know, fly in and uh, manually, uh, it can be manually operated or steer itself using computer vision. And so um, there was a paragraph here that notes that retreating forces were subject to continual harassment from the un unmanned combat aerial vehicles and lethal autonomous weapons system, and that there were significant casualties as a result. But uh, that's, that's all that was in this report, actually, this one really short bit. So even though it generated a lot of uh, news articles, actually, this one from Verge took a you know, deep look into it. And right now it seems pretty vague as to if this is really the first time, uh, you know, if it's actually that bad. But still, I think this is definitely a, a sign of uh, things we could expect more and more, uh, especially with this sort of thing. It seems pretty easy to build now, I would, I would think. So Terminator, <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see how this progresses. I, I think, um, uh, you know, it, it all depends on how you also define killer robot. Um, I mean, the killer part might be pretty self-explanatory autonomous part is self-explanatory, but the, the robot part, you know, if it's a, if it's a gun that's just firing on its own, uh, with, with, uh, either facial recognition or, you know, just person detection or, um, tank detection. Like, is, is that, is that killer robot too? And I think we imagine, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, more or less, but, uh, it, it I guess it, it does depend. And based on that changing definition, maybe it's happened earlier. So, uh, who knows, uh, on that, uh, yeah, exactly. And, uh, this article is, is pretty extensive. It has, a discussion of, you know, the different uh, ideas as to how to define kill robots, uh, the efforts for regulation on AI. So I would say it's definitely a good read for more details. But the short version is it's probably not that bad. You know, if you see these uh, headlines, then don't worry about it too much yet. Uh, but do be aware that there's no regulation on these things and that might be a problem. Uh, in the future. And to end things on a lighter note, uh, the last article that we'll be discussing today is from Wired and it's titled, Don't End Up on This Artificial Intelligence Hall of Shame. So there's this AI incident database or AI hall of shame, essentially. Uh, and this is hosted by Partnership on AI. And they basically uh, contain... <laughs> hundred incidents uh, of just flops of AI, like where AI has just completely failed. And so that includes the security robot that flopped into a fountain, number 68, and Google's photo organizing service, which tagged black people as gorillas, number 16. Uh, and this <laughs> role of dishonor is what it's kind of uh, called, uh, was started by Sean McGregor. Um, and this, he works as a machine learning engineer uh, at uh, Sentient. 
And this really highlights, you know, some of the big issues out there in AI uh, and especially within companies. So among the 100 incidents logged so far, 16 involve Google, uh, which is more than any other company, and seven involve Amazon and two involve Microsoft. And so it's just bringing to light some of, you know, the big incidents in AI where AI has kind of failed and also bringing to light, you know, companies behind that uh, and keeping kind of a tallies, maybe keeping people accountable in some sense. Yeah, I think this is pretty neat. <laughs> I don't know if this is necessarily useful per se, but um, I do think it uh, often because AI is so young, uh, or has been emerging recently, let's say in the past decade and, and being commercialized and so on, maybe a lot of these things are unexpected. And the engineers, the products, people who built these things might not be aware of the ways that systems could break and it can be pretty unexpected. You know, um, of course you can think there might be bias, but, uh, you know, maybe you didn't... Uh, build your robot to look out for fountains, right? Uh, uh, maybe you didn't think about um, issues with uh, facial recognition um, being, I don't know, labeling you as something strange. So I could see being useful just for people to be more aware of the weird ways in which AI fails. And I do think it's interesting that uh, they, there's kind of a lot of metadata. So uh, from these 100 incidents, uh, 16 have involved Google more than any other company, and then Amazon has seven and Microsoft too. So maybe another thing about the database is beyond just having useful examples, it is a way to hold big companies accountable to actually make sure these kinds of things don't happen as opposed to you know letting it happen and then... Uh, try and clean it up, that sort of thing. Exactly. And that's it for us this episode. Uh, but be sure to stick around for a few more minutes to get a quick summary of some other cool news stories from our very own newscaster, Daniel Bashir. First off, on the research side, one of the major barriers to developing a successful AI project is data quality. 85% of AI projects fail and a recent study revealed that 96% of organizations have problems with training data quality and quantity. As VentureBeat reports, organizations are discovering that when good data just isn't available, the gap can be filled with synthetic data or artificially generated data. Second, Fizz.org reports that researchers from Carnegie Mellon University developed a new process that uses machine learning algorithms to isolate natural products that could be used for developing drugs. In the business and application side, we have two new challengers to OpenAI. According to Pulse News, South Korea's Naver Corp has unveiled a new Korean-based language model system named Hyperclova, which boasts even more parameters than GPT-3. The second challenger comes from China. As Ping West reports, the Beijing Academy of Artificial Intelligence launched the latest version of its pre-trained deep learning model Wudao that is 10 times the size of GPT-3. Wudao is a multimodal model trained to tackle both the text and image domains. 
And finally, a few stories on AI and society. The infamous facial recognition company Clearview AI, as Forbes writes, has been hit with a barrage of privacy complaints in Europe, which claim the company breached the bloc's strict data protection laws by illegally using personal data. As the EU considers new AI legislation, criticism has come from the states. As former Google CEO Eric Schmidt has warned that the bloc's AI transparency requirements would be a big setback to Europe. According to Politico, Schmidt claims that regulation would hamper US-Europe cooperation in order to compete with China on AI innovation. And in our final story, Google continues to make public statements about its commitment to ethical AI research in the wake of the departure of star researcher Timnit Gebru. But, as current members of the ethical AI group told Vox Recode, the team has been in a state of limbo, and they have serious doubts that company leaders can rebuild credibility in the academic community or will listen to the group's concerns. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Skyna Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with even more content at skynettoday.com. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review if you like the show. Be sure to tune in when we return next week.